Good morning. I want to start, uh, start out with a confession, and that is this. And where's Kay? Is Kay, are you here? Kay, uh, I've known, uh, I, I was asked uh, several weeks ago, we agreed uh, that, that I would speak today. And glad to do that, happy, thankful to do that, excited to do that. And Kay called me Wednesday, I think it was, and said, um, Todd, what, um, what verse would you like us to put on the bulletin, the front of the bulletin? And for a couple of weeks, I've been, I've been preparing a message um, I thought uh, would be a good message for us. And uh, it revolved around uh, Ephesians 5.20, which is on the front of your bulletin. And so that's what I said to Kay. I said, uh, Kay, please put Ephesians 5.20 on the front of the bulletin. And then Thursday morning at about 3.30, God woke me up and brought me downstairs in my living room and, and gave me something completely different. Um, so it, it does absolutely relate to Ephesians 5.20, but that's, um, that's not going to be the centerpiece of what we talk about today. And so um, it's going to be new to you, and I assure you that in a lot of ways, uh, what I'm going to say today is new to me as well. So, um, Steve asked that the, the discussion today be... Um, obviously around Thanksgiving. And uh, I guess initially as we discuss this concept of Thanksgiving, it's important for us to sort of agree on what exactly it is that, that we're talking about. Uh, you know, as we grow up, you know, we have, a, we have a little child at our house and two older boys at our house, and we're very actively... Right now, in our 14-month-old's life, we're very actively trying to teach him when it's appropriate to say thank you and, and please and have good manners. And I think that there's a cultural teaching that we go through here, and probably everywhere, where we learn how Thanksgiving ties into having good manners and what the expectations are uh, when we say when we were to say Thanksgiving, and we're kind of taught that, and it becomes part of us, and, and we even recognize, you know, if we give someone a gift and they don't say thank you, it's, <laughs> I guess. You know, I remember um, when I was, home, uh, I was home for college when I was 19, and uh, it was Thanksgiving break, and I was watching an episode of Star Trek, and uh, my mother, who was a, an absolute, uh, very enthusiastic giver of Christmas gifts, um, she saw me watching Star Trek, and she said, are you a Trekkie? And uh, if you know what a Trekkie is, uh, I'm not one. But I did enjoy an occasional Star Trek, and so I said, well, no, Mom, I'm not, I don't think I'm really a Trekkie. I, I, you know, I like Star Trek. That's a pretty good show every now and then. So I came home for Christmas a couple of weeks later, and uh, it was Christmas morning. Myself, my mom, my two sisters are there opening presents under the tree, and, and, uh, <laughs> and I opened this one present up. And inside it is a silver Lycra James T. Kirk uniform shirt. (laughs) I kid you not. It had the Federation, the Starfleet Federation thing. And uh, it had a zipper that went halfway down the chest. And it was, uh, and my sisters were looking at me going, what are you going to do, Todd? And I went... Oh, Mom, how did you know? How, how did you know that this was going to be, I mean, I, thank you. It was hugs and kisses. 
And, you know, the epilogue of the story is I, I stuffed it in the bottom of my hamper. And I went back to Virginia Tech, and she called me a few days later and said, Hey, you know, I found that shirt. I, I, oh, Mom, I, I totally forgot it. Anyway, I wore it, uh, I wore it Christmas. I think that's the only day I, I wore it. But I, I wanted to draw a distinction for us today between what we may conjure up in our minds as Thanksgiving, uh, not only the, 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 the good manners part of Thanksgiving, or even the holiday of Thanksgiving. I mean, here it's Thursday, right? And we have, we have this expectation. Sometimes it's almost a pressure to today. The government says today is the day. Fourth Thursday of November every year, we have got to give Thanksgiving. It doesn't matter if we've lost our jobs. It doesn't matter if we like our in-laws. It doesn't matter if the, if the turkey burns or the visit's good or bad or our football team loses or they can't even afford the turkey. It doesn't matter. Today is the day you give Thanksgiving. And so, you know, we can kind of work ourselves up into this pressure, can't we? That we, we, have to, we have to kind of search and seek for things to give Thanksgiving over. And so, is it, is it true that it's, you know, if we, if we relegate our search for things to be thankful for just in this, in this place, we are setting ourselves up for disappointment. Right? And Paul said, if, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be, what? Pitied. Pitied more than all men. If, we, if this is all we get, we're to be pitied more than all men. So when, I, when we talk about Thanksgiving here today, we're not talking about trying to conjure up some identifiable list of, of uh, environmental factors that we can be thankful for, thankful for good health. I'm not saying that these should not be things that we're thankful for. But I'm saying there's more. Thankful for a good job or healthy children. Because those things, are all, they all change, right? And, uh, and the, the lives that we lead here and now are not the end of the story. And in all honesty, it's, you know, I mean, when you look at the data of our, of our country, um, depression, illness, economics. I mean, the news is, is not good. So my, my point is there is, for Christians, there has to be, and I believe there is, a, a transcendent nature to the thanks that we are to give as, as the people of God. Um, so with that, with that sort of um, foundation laid, I'll share with you that God woke me up Thursday and, and the place he took me was uh, was Nehemiah. And just to set the stage uh, a little bit, many of you probably know the story of the captivity, uh, of the people of God taken away under Nebuchadnezzar, taken away to Babylon for this captivity, um, taken out of Jerusalem. And uh, there's a verse in Second Chronicles, you don't have to turn there, but I'll, it just sort of sums up uh, sort of the end of, of scene one, if you will, in this story that, that we're looking at today. Uh, speaking of, of the captivity and what led up to it and, and the end result of it, it says in Second Chronicles thirty six nineteen, it says, Then they burned the house of God. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious possessions. It's a sad, sad story. And they carry everybody away, men, women, and children, they carry him away, and Jerusalem is left barren, empty, right? 
So, and God moves, and he doesn't forget his people. And he moves in the heart of a few people. He moves in the heart of Zerubbabel to go back and rebuild the temple. He moves in the heart of Ezra, which is the book immediately preceding this book, uh, to go back and to, to be the scribe. But we're going to pick up in the beginning of Nehemiah in the first chapter. Nehemiah is a, is a uh, high-ranking government official. He is the cupbearer for the king. So he's kind of, he's on the inside circle. And, uh, and we pick it up in, in Nehemiah 1, verse 2. And I'm going to be reading, I'll forewarn you, I'm going to be reading a number of scriptures and kind of walking quickly through Nehemiah. So uh, I'll make this promise to you. I'm reading out of the New King James, and the verses that I read are going to be right out of the scriptures. If you want to keep up and, you know, and, and go with me, that's fine. I don't want it to be a distraction to you, though. So uh, Nehemiah 1-2 tells the story of, of Hanani, one of uh, Nehemiah's brethren, came with men from Judah and... Nehemiah asks him concerning the welfare of the Jews in Jerusalem. Nehemiah at this time is still serving in the king's court in Babylon, in Persia. And, uh, and he gets this report from men that had just come back from Jerusalem. And he says, hey, how are they doing? Verse 3, and they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Well, that's not good. You read a little further on and you read about Nehemiah being moved by this news. He's moved to weeping and he's moved to fasting and he's moved to prayer for many days, it says. And so the Spirit of God moves in his heart, and he eventually goes to his boss, the king. And he says, King, um, I've got something on my heart. I'd like your permission to go back and to, and to help my countrymen. And the king says, go. And that's what happens. He goes back. And... Um, and we're going to read most of the rest of our, our discussion today will be from, from Nehemiah 3 to the end of the, to the, end of the book. So <clears throat> he gets to Jerusalem and it says that when he got there, he'd been there three days and he rose in the middle of the night, and uh, this is 2.12, and he... he went outside the gate and he investigated and evaluated the gate and its condition. The gate being this, the city, the, the walls around the city. And he found it to be, as it had been reported to be, basically destroyed. And, uh, and he rallies the people to, to work together collaboratively to rebuild this wall. Now, why? let me stop for a second and say, why am I sharing this Old Testament story with us today. Uh, one of the things God has taught me over the past couple of years uh, in a very special way is just how much 
the Old Testament connects to the New Testament. Uh, I think in my young Christian life, I sort of, um, I didn't have a, a tremendous appreciation for the Old Testament and uh, kind of thought, well, we're new covenant creatures now. It's, uh, it's Jesus and grace. And that's true. But the Old Testament um, so often gives us representations and shadows and, and references to concepts and truths that apply to our lives today. And I think this story of the rebuilding of the wall and, and what follows is, is one of those stories that applies very much to our lives here today and what we're experiencing today as Christians. And I think as we go through some of these things that we're going to see some very specific elements of this Nehemiah story and how it applies to our life in this, this place today. So Nehemiah rallies the people that are in the city. And uh, chapter 3 begins with this description of just how, how much collaborative effort takes place in the rebuilding of this wall. And so as we go, I want to just remind us of a couple of things. Number one, we're talking about people in captivity, right? Well, the New Testament certainly talks of us as people that had been prior to Christ in captivity. The Nehemiah story is going to talk about uh, a collaborative working together as a body. I think we'll see there's certain references uh, that apply to our lives today. It's going to talk about um, a people of thanksgiving that when we get to the end of Nehemiah, uh, I think we'll hopefully be able to see exactly how we are to be thankful as Christians. So the rebuilding begins. Verse 3.1, it starts with the sheep gate. And it goes on, if you read chapter 3 of Nehemiah, it goes on, it talks about each family, each person doing their part, building that section of the wall, rebuilding that section of the wall that's right in front of their house. Maybe a little section at a time, and this person built from here to there, and then the next person picked up and built from here to there, and the next person picked up and built from this tower to that gate, and from this gate to that pool, and from this pool to this part of the wall. And it goes on and on through the third chapter, through the end of the third chapter, and it ends in verse 32 at the Sheep Gate. So they've made a complete circumnavigation of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. There was opposition to the work. In chapter 4, verse 7, and verse 8, Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, in verse 7, the Ashdites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, and they became very angry. It was dirty work. It was confusing work. Verse 410 says, The strength of the laborers, Judah says, The strength of the laborers is failing, and there's so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. Does it seem sometimes like that for you and for me as we live our lives together and, and seek to know the Lord more? Does it seem sometimes that and it's messy. And it's hard. There's opposition. Confusion sometimes. It gets so bad that Nehemiah tells the people in verse 4, verse 17, that they're actually to build with one hand while they hold a weapon with the other hand. Just a great, a great picture. So eventually, the wall is completed. 
And in verse 615, it says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. Now, Elul is the sixth month of the Hebrew calendar. So I think it's significant that we just pause a second here and, and, and remind ourselves that, that God had ordained in his law that the, his people were to observe a few special ceremonies and, and holidays. Uh, three of those in particular were, uh, were what are called pilgrim, pilgrim holidays or pilgrim festivals when, when uh, people were actually supposed to travel to Jerusalem for these, for these festivals, these feasts. One was the Feast of Passover, which occurred in the first month. We know that one, right? Uh, another was the Feast of Weeks, which is the uh, Feast of Pentecost in the New Testament. That occurred um, uh, at varying times. I think it was 50 days after, after the first fruit of the wheat harvest. So it de- depended, I guess, on when, when the Feast of Weeks began. But then the third was called the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. And uh, that occurred in the seventh month, the seventh month. So here we have this, uh, this great story that culminates in the completion of the wall, and it's done finally after 52 days. It's done uh, in Elul on the, in the sixth month. Okay? Moving through. Verse 7-5 says... Uh, that after this wall is complete, that Nehemiah put it in, God put it in Nehemiah's heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people that they may be registered by genealogy. And it says that he found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return. So, interesting. The end of chapter 7, verse 73. So, so the priests, the Levites... The gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the Nethanim and all Israel dwelt in their cities. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. The children of Israel were in their cities. So let's put some some meat on on the picture. You have a, a people that were formerly captive that have now come home to the city of their heritage, the city of their promise. You have work that needed to be done that was done collaboratively. You have um, the completion of the work in the seventh month. But the problem is that none of the people that were there for this knew much about the word of God. As a matter of fact, in verse 8.1, it says, Now the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law, and they start reading the word. The whole city is gathered together in the open square. The wall is done, which speaks of protection. Their home in the city of their heritage, and they're, they're, they're ready to hear from the Lord. And the Lord stirs up their hearts to the point where they ask Ezra, come, read the word to us. And he does. And he reads the word. And it says, it's that, 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 here, that starts 
the first day of the seventh month. He read in the open square. And it says the people were so blessed by hearing, I think perhaps for the first time, the word of God. They were so blessed by that. It says in verse 6 that they answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So what a, what a picture of God's people at home, safe, hearing the word and responding to the word. We're leading up to, hopefully, an understanding of what it is that can be the origin, should be the origin of our thanksgiving as the people of God. So, it says here, 8.13, now on the second day, so that's the first day, they read to all the people. On the second day, verse 8.13, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra in order to understand the words of the law. And they found, listen to this, they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. They were so unfamiliar with this. They had never done it. They had never, I mean, imagine the people of God, this group, never having been in the city that God had promised them, never having been under the protection of the walls that they had rebuilt, never having celebrated this feast or any feast that God had proclaimed them and commanded them to observe. As a matter of fact, in verse 8.17, it says, A whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. Can you imagine how, how happy they must have been? To, to finally be where they're supposed to be? And it says, For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. So I wonder what that must have looked like, to see the entire city together celebrating this feast of booths for the first time since Joshua. New to all of them. How glad would they have been? How amazing an experience that that must have been. Moving over. Finally, there is a decision to dedicate the wall. The Feast of Booths is over. And remember, the Feast of Booths is very much a feast of the harvest, a feast of thanksgiving. If you look back at the origin, it's, it was to be... Uh, to be celebrated after the harvest. So, verse, uh, chapter 12 comes, and verse 27, there's, this, there's this, uh, this celebration, this dedication of this great wall now that has been built and is surrounding the people. 
It says, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites and all their places, verse 1, to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with, with thanksgiving and singing, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. So they're going to have an amazing dedication ceremony. They're going to have uh, an amazing, amazing celebration here. And what Nehemiah does is, this is really where, where I started, where I started uh, my reading around this message. Because what he does is he appoints two choirs. And they're referred to in the scripture as Thanksgiving choirs. Like our choir maybe today. And, and he, they're inside the city, around the wall, and he brings these two choirs up at the sheep gate, and he tells them to go in opposite directions and basically surround the city. Do you get the picture? Amazing. And that's what they do. They go up in verse 1240, so the two Thanksgiving choirs stood in the house of God likewise, and they're, they're, they're around the wall. And 1243 says, Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. So, that's an Old Testament story. It's an Old Testament picture. How can it apply to us in our, in our life today? And this is where, where the book of Hebrews comes in. So, let's go over to Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews 12. And, and just as a little background, our house group has been studying Hebrews for about a, a year now. And uh, it, has, it has been an amazing study for me personally, and I trust for, for those who, who are, have been with us. The, the theme of Hebrews has been, uh, it is, that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And as you read through Hebrews, it tells us all the ways, a variety of ways in which Jesus is better. Jesus is better than uh, he's a better messenger of God than the prophets were. He's more worthy of praise than the angels. He's a better priest than Aaron. All these from early chapters of Hebrews. He's more faithful over his house than was Moses faithful over his house. And on and on and on it goes in Hebrews, teaching us that Jesus is better. And he, the audience of that book were probably not much different than you and I. So uh, they had been ingrained and, and taught in certain ways and they're coming to terms with just how much better Jesus is than the life they had been living and the observances that they had been observing and the festivals that they had been taking part in. And so we get... Here in Hebrews 12, and verse 18. It says, You have not come 
to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Old Testament. But you, me, us, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven. To God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And moving over to verse 13 of chapter 13 in Hebrews, we're given this charge. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So, I just thought, Perhaps the Lord would remind us today uh, that the source of our capacity to give thanks, whether it's this Thursday around the dinner table with our families or, or today or whenever, the, the, the source of our capacity to give thanks is not wrapped up in our circumstances because circumstances change. Uh, it's not wrapped up in our good manners. Because manners are culturally taught. And so, you know, sometimes I, I can sense the Lord teaching me. And sometimes I can sense the Lord unteaching me. Some things that I've learned uh, from, from culture and uh, from this place. But I'd want, I, I just want to leave us with, with this, this set of pictures. That a captive people, set free by a king, placed in the city of their heritage protected and safe, with the choir surrounding us, singing over us, is very much, although it's, it's, it's the story in Nehemiah, it is very much the story of our lives as Christians today. That we have all of those things going on right now. That he has prepared a place for us. It's a heavenly city. It's not a broken down city. That he himself, it says, sings over us that we aren't registered in the registry that Nehemiah found. We are registered in the Lamb's Book of Life. And we can go forth from here knowing those things because those things transcend anything that the world can throw us. The Sanballats and Ammonites of the world that can kill our bodies, 
We, we serve one who has overcome the world. So I wanted to just encourage us today, as the people of God, to just remember that if you are in a season of your life where conjuring up thanks is difficult because of the circumstances that you find yourself in, you are in good company. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And it is difficult. And it is messy. And God, Jesus, is building his body. And it is confusing. And sometimes there's a lot of refuse laying around and we don't know what to do. It hinders the work. But let's not make any mistake about it that Jesus Christ is standing with the Father right now making intercession for us that we have a home waiting for us, and that uh, the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, I'll finish with this for what it's worth. I went to this conference earlier this year, and, and, and there's a, the worship band was, was played the song, and there's a phrase in the song, a chorus in the song that says, uh, your walls are salvation. Your gates are praise. And that's a verse from the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 60, verse 18. It says, your walls are salvation. Your gates are praise. And I, I always kind of was like, what, what does that mean? How can gates be praise and walls be salvation? But I think, thank God, I, I think I, I'm getting a little bit more of it now. And kind of looking at this story. And saints, we are the people of God and we are safe and we are sung over, and, and we have uh, our books in the, in the Lamb's Book of Life. So let's, as we go forth from here, let's have that and those things be the source of our thanksgiving, not just this Thursday, but until the Lord calls us home. Amen? Amen. Let, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, you, uh, you have done it all, and you are worthy of all of our praise and all of our thanksgiving. Lord, we want to know you more. So I pray, Father, that you would take any of these words this morning uh, and, and grow them yourself. Lord, help us to lift our heads and to look at you as the giver of all good things. May our praises, Father, be offered from a heart of thanksgiving because we know you not because our circumstances are good this season. Jesus, we depend on you. We can't conjure it up ourselves. So, Father, just meet us. Meet us here and help us become more and more a people with thanksgiving on our lips. In Jesus' name, amen.